The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Weren't for you and your work, uh, none of us would be here today as your children, Lord, with a secure future in you. So, Lord, as we consider the passage we're going to look at today, would you use it uh, to, to grow us, to shape us, to show us uh, who we are to be in you? And, Lord, would you lift up the king, the king as he ought to be, and give us, Lord, just a full picture of, of who you are as the king? So, Lord, lead us this morning. Um, would you be glorified in our time together? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, our lead pastor, Steve, he's out for the next couple weekends. He had a daughter. His oldest daughter got married this weekend, and they've got family in town. And so, um, so I'll, I'll be uh, leading us here for the next couple weeks from, from the pulpit. Um, as we think about the content or the, the message we have here today, uh, I suppose a number of us have been watching the Olympics as of late. And with the Olympics, uh, we see that there is a, a search for greatness and a search for glory for both uh, one's nation, and then we also see individuals elevated to just this level of, of, of glory as well and greatness. Um, also in recent culture, and we hear this a little bit in the narrative of the Olympics, we hear this idea of the goat, and not the little animal that you know, makes the sheep noise that I will not make right now. Um, but the goat is in the greatest of all time. And so we, we've heard this ascribed to people in debates, like, is Michael Jordan the goat? Or is LeBron James? And the answer is Michael Jordan. It's, it's sure. <laughs> Tom Brady, the goat. And in the context of the Olympics, we heard that with Simone Biles as well. Today, we're going to look at what would be considered, or what could be considered, the Old Testament goat, Solomon himself. And so, uh, so this morning, and then in the upcoming weeks, uh, as I have opportunities to preach, uh, we're, we're going to do, begin looking at a, a new mini-series that's going to look at the kings of Judah, and, and look at different lessons that we can learn from these kings. And Kind of our entry point into this is, is if you've read the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, or First and Second Chronicles, there's a number of kings in, in the history of Israel and Judah, and usually surrounding their life, there's a description of them, something along the, li the lines of, and he did right in the eyes of the Lord. Or we see it on the other side, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we're going to kind of pick up this this idea and look at some of the individual kings of Judah, and particularly the ones who did right in the eyes of the Lord, and, and the ones uh, who, who came along and, and represent reform to Judah and to Israel. And there's just some fascinating stories in the lives of, of these kings. Um, but before we kind of move on to some of these kings, I want to start with the foundation of the handoff that David gave to Solomon and the life of Solomon and what that represents in our Bible. And so I'm going to be using 2 Chronicles uh, 1 through 9 as our reference point today. And so um, you'll find First and Second Chronicles kind of after all the history books um, coming right after their First and Second Kings. And, and in that, um, I had one person approach me. Uh, in our, on our email, it says chapters 1 through 9. So... I'm not going to bore you and in a monotone vo voice <laughs> read chapters 1 through 9 this morning, um, but what I'm going to do is a little bit different in that we're going to look at a biography of sorts, and so you can maybe think of this as a little like story time with Pastor B, but I'm not going to invite you to come up and sit up here and give you a lollipop. You're, you can stay where you are. Um, so as we, as we look at this, um, I'm, I'm going to use that Second Chronicles 1 through 9 as our primary reference point. Um, but also, we'll, we'll be looking in from different angles at First and Second Kings as they fill in some of the story in different ways. So, as we consider the life of Solomon, I'm going to consider it in four acts, like four acts of a play, four movements. And the four acts are the background and early life of Solomon, 
Next, the second act will be God's promise to Solomon. The third will be the kingdom of Solomon. And then the fourth will be the heart of Solomon. So as we go along, I'll read some passages that give us anchor points and just this narrative of his life. So, um, and then when, when done with that, I'll apply a couple lessons that we can learn and take away from, from the life of Solomon. So as we begin, let's first consider the uh, background and early life of Solomon. So Solomon, he was the son of David and Bathsheba. And if you remember, David, in a moment of weakness, he had an affair with Bathsheba. And while her husband is away at war, um, he actually gets her pregnant. And to cover it up, he then sends, uh, sends Uriah, her wife, to the front lines of the battle and essentially plots his death. Uriah ends up dying. And, uh, and from there, David then takes Bathsheba as his wife. So God being God, he sees all and knows all. And he confronts David with this through the prophet Nathan. And in that, David hears the word from God, the call to repentance, and, and he repents. But the end result is sickness and death of that baby. Well, after all this, Bathsheba becomes pregnant again with a second child, and this child is Solomon. And that's all to say that Solomon is born into a very unusual circumstance. But it's the will of God and the will of David, as we'll see, that he be, is to become the next king. So near the end of David's life, um, another of David's sons, uh, one of his sons from another mother, um, who uh, I'll explain that later. Um, the kings have multiple wives, and that's confusing, I know. But uh, his son, uh, Adonijah, uh, she, he, he presumes himself to be the next king of Israel. And so as David is weak and he's in bed, he starts to take matters into his own hands. And so in this, Bathsheba and Nathan, they hear this news, and they bring it to David, and they say, do you, do you hear what's going on? Do you know what's happening? Adonijah's trying to become king. So this urges David to act and to remember his promise that he'd given to Solomon to reign as king. So then it sets a series of events that anoints Solomon as the king. So in the anointing of Solomon as king, there are two primary charges that David gives to Solomon two things that he wants Solomon to know for his reign and for his rule. And the first one is that he, he charges Solomon to build the temple. So David had it in his heart to build the temple, um, but the word of, the God, word of God came to him and didn't allow him to do it. And I'll just read this in First Chronicles 22. It says, the reason why David couldn't build the temple, he says, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days and he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So though David wasn't able to build the temple himself, he began to provide and store up materials so that his son Solomon could do that. And that's one of the major, again, charges, tasks that he gives Solomon to do, to build the temple. The second thing that he tells Solomon to do, the second charge, is to walk in the ways of God, to keep the law of Moses. And he tells him, if you're to do this, if you walk in the ways of God and keep the law, then you will prosper prosperity will be your reward. But then he's not just concerned about Solomon doing that. He also looks down at the next generation, and he says, David says to Solomon, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So we see this kingdom is getting established and set up by David, and he's handing it to Solomon. And he's thinking about this promise that's been given to see a king rule from Israel on the throne from generation to generation. But the contingency here is, will Solomon and will his sons keep the ways of God? Will they, will they keep the law of Moses? So upon the start of Solomon's reign, he takes both of these charges to heart. And he begins by seeking God at a place that's called the Tent of Meeting. 
Some of us have heard of this as the tabernacle, and this is the tent that moved around with Israel in the wilderness. Well, this tent has ended up on a mountain near Jerusalem, and so, uh, and, and in, in the tent, there's uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll talk about in a sec, but um, uh, Solomon goes to the tent to seek God to worship him, and he offers 1,000 burnt, uh, burnt offerings. And so from the get-go, we see a right start from Solomon. We see him drawing near to God in dependence according to the law, according to the way that God has asked him to. And so it's after that he, he seeks God in this tent of meeting that Solomon has one of two God encounters in his life. So the first God encounter um, happens after he makes the sacrifices and, and God appears to him. So if you have your Bible open, go to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 13 here and see what God says to him in this encounter. So starting verse 7, In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father now be fulfilled. For you have made me a king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people, over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings who had uh, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place of Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. So as we look at this passage, God was so pleased with the request of Solomon, and that Solomon's heart wasn't set on possessions and wealth and honor, the death of his enemies or longevity of life. But God grants his requests by giving Solomon wisdom and knowledge. But then on top of that, because of this initial just humility and heart of Solomon, he gives, uh, on top of that, unprecedented riches. He gives him uh, possessions, honor. And so it's with this blessing from God that Solomon begins an incredible reign, and he begins his work on the temple. He begins his work on his own house. So Solomon sets to work on the temple, and roughly for the first half of his reign, so Solomon reigned for 40 years, the first 20 years were spent working on the temple and his own house. So he had significant work uh, before him. And so he took, the temple took seven years to complete, and in that he employed over 150,000 people to the work. And it's a funny thing that David, at the end of his life, he took a census of Israel as if he was ready to go to war. And this was something that God was not pleased with. But Solomon, the king of peace, he uses this census information to actually employ the men of Israel to work and build the temple. And in a wise way, he starts the on-off schedule of you're home for two months and you leave and work for a month. And, and, and honoring kind of the family in, in a way... Uh, kind of life. And so uh, he, he takes uh, seven years, over 150,000 people to this work. And so after seven years upon completing the temple, it's time for the Levites, who they oversee the tent of meeting and the, and the temple and the, and the Ark of the Covenant, uh, there to bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, into the temple. And so some of us might be thinking here like, okay, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Is that is that, that thing from Indiana Jones, you know, where you know, the, the guy, like, opens it in his face. You know, it's like, yeah, you know the scene. Um, and if you haven't seen Indiana Jones, you can, go, you can go watch it with your parents' permission if you're a kid. Um, but anyways, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, it, it's more or less an ornamental box with two poles on it that can be carried. And it, inside of it holds the law of God on tablets of stone written by the hand of God. And this, this goes with them, and it sits in the center of the tent of meeting. 
and it represents God's presence with his people. Well, the Ark of the Covenant then is to go and be placed inside the temple. And in it, it's going to be inside the most innermost room, which is called the Holy of Holies. And so as the Ark comes in and all of Israel is gathered to praise God and to see the Ark placed in the temple, what happens is the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand a minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So think about this. This must have been a beautiful and glorious, but also a, a fearful scene as you see this cloud come and, and indwell the temple. And, and the best word that comes, to, you know, that we could use is it was awesome. It struck awe probably into the lives of the Israelites, to the life of Solomon. And so following this, Solomon goes to pronounce a blessing upon the people of God. And he's, he's going to remember the promise that God had given um, to his father David. And now the promise that he's fulfilled and is fulfilling through Solomon in the completion of the temple as he reigns on the king, as he reigns as a king on the throne, David's offspring on the throne, the beginning of what should be forever. And so he, he pronounces a blessing over the people, and then he begins to offer a prayer of dedication. And in this prayer, he comes to God and he asks him for a couple things. First, he asks that God would do what he promised to David, that he would keep a man on the throne of Israel. He asks that his sons would pay close attention to their way and walk in the law as David walked into the law. So here's Solomon asking God, saying, God, do this. You must keep your promise. He's dependent on God for it. But the second thing he asks is he asks that God's eyes, uh, eyes would be open and his ears would be attentive to the prayers of Israel. And Solomon knows that Israel is going to have ups and downs. He knows that there's sin that's going to be involved. And we think about the nature of the whole temple is that sacrifices are made for sin is... is uh, as people come to the temple to worship God. So, but he asks for God to be attentive and to hear Israel's prayers, to hear their requests. And he does this in a number of scenarios. He says, when, when we sin against our neighbors, would you hear and forgive us? When we are defeated by an enemy because we have sinned against you, would you hear and forgive us? Would you hear our cries as we come to you in repentance? When there's no rain because we've sinned against you, and we come to you again in turn, would you hear our prayers and forgive us? When there's famine and pestilence and mildew and locusts and enemies and plagues and sicknesses that are threatening Israel, would you hear the request of your people when we come and repent and depend on you? He also says, when a foreigner comes to worship, would you hear him? When Israel goes out to battle, hear their cries, would you lead them in battle? When they sin against God and are carried away captive to another land, would you hear our prayers and answer them? It's an incredible prayer and passage that is recorded here. As Solomon, he sees and anticipates all these things that are, that are going to happen. And he asks that God would have a kind heart to his, towards his people. That he would hear them and receive them in every circumstance. And in that list, we should hear every circumstance. So, immediately... As God uh, or as Solomon finishes this prayer, there's again a, a powerful display. And this time, fire comes down from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice, it consumes the burnt offerings there at the temple. And the glory of the Lord again fills the temple, and the priest could not enter because the glory of the Lord had filled God's house. And this is significant. If you have any memory of the Old Testament of, of God traveling with Moses and the people through the wilderness, he goes with them by cloud and fire. <laughs> and here we see both of those images of cloud and fire and God's presence, his, his commitment to be with Solomon and the people. And here it's, it's confirmed in, in sight. And so let's just like pause and, and think about this for a second in the, in the storyline of what we've come to at this point. And we need to pause and recognize like Solomon is the man. Solomon, he's inaugurated the kingdom of God. What Abraham and Moses and David and others have anticipated, it's actually taking place right now. 
God has gathered himself a people as numerous as the sand. He's planted them in a flourishing land without any remaining threat of an enemy. He's present with them. He abides with them in the very heart of Jerusalem, in the temple. And not only is this God, yes, he has a law, but he's ready to forgive them whenever they seek him and repent. He's committed. What more could anyone ask for? And Solomon's the one to usher in this kingdom and bring it here. So Solomon and all of Israel, they've seen God physically present here in the form of a cloud and fire as he indwells the temple. And this is just a glorious scene that I think, one, any of us would be lucky to be just a witness of as God displays his power and his glory. And we see here that the kingdom of God seems to have been established in glory and greatness. So that's, that's the background and early life of Solomon. And then next, the the second act I want to look at, what what does the kingdom of Solomon look like? What is its glory? What is its greatness? So let's consider the second part. So God blessed Solomon and all that he did, and he built through him the greatest kingdom that Israel would ever experience. And it's as if Solomon has been given a golden finger that anything he touches, anything he says, it turns to gold. It's successful. It flourishes. He's like King Midas, the OG, you know? He touches it, turned it to gold. And so with that, his wisdom and his wealth, they're on f- full display for the world to see. And so I, I just want to give a quick summary. Let's, what is the expanse of his kingdom? What is the glory of his kingdom? Well, Solomon, he was a savvy businessman. He was an economic developer. He's doing business in the surrounding regions He's both importing and exporting goods, one to the gain of his own nation, but also benefiting the other surrounding nations, too, as they do business. He was a just and righteous judge and ruler over his people. And many of us would be familiar with the story where there's, there's two prostitutes that come to him and, for wisdom. And the, these two ladies both have had a baby, and one of the, one of the women has laid over on her baby and, and killed her baby. And in the middle of the night, she swaps with this other, with this other woman, swaps the baby. <laughs> and then the, in the morning, the, the mom who now has a dead baby, who's not her, she recognizes, this isn't my child, but it's, it's their word against each other. So they take this to Solomon. And Solomon, in his wisdom, discerns the tension, and he says, okay, there's only one baby. Let's cut it in half, and we can divide it between the two of you. And... <laughs> The first lady, the ones that baby died, she's like, yes, that's fair. That's, you know, we can split the baby. And, and the second is like, no, <laughs> let her have the baby. I want the child to live. And in this little test, Solomon discerns who the true mother is. And again, that's just a little anecdote of his wisdom, which I'm sure there's countless scenarios of this. But we see that he's a just and righteous ruler, the one that Israel deserves that's going to execute justice that's going to care rightly for his people. Next, we see that his kingdom had peace and security like time no other. There's no war that we see during the reign of Solomon. And, and in this, though he was a king of peace, he also had some of the, great, the greatest military resources in, in his accumulation of horses, of chariots, of horsemen. Um, and without war, somehow he ruled over uh, the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. In his kingdom, he had the largest geographical expansion that Israel ever experienced. And, and so we see that here's a king ruling through peace, a king ruling through prosperity and respect. This is an incredible king that Solomon is. And on top of this, leaders from all over the world, they bring him gifts They come just to listen to him talk, to listen to his wisdom. They come to just admire the prosperity of his kingdom. And we see this on full display um, with the Queen of Sheba, which I think is in in chapter 8, which you can read later, uh, or or chapter 9. But the the Queen of Sheba, she comes and he answers all her hard questions. And upon seeing his wisdom, the house that he's built, the food on his table, the prosperity of his servants and officials, it's noted that uh, there was no more breath in her. 
She was literally breathless because she was so just overwhelmed by the kingdom and person and reign of Solomon. So we see his greatness on full display there before the leaders of the world. Next, we see he accumulated so much gold that silver became as common as stone. He constructed a throne so great that the author of Chronicles states that nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. He built a temple. He built a grand house for himself. And then he built up many cities through Judah. And so one, one description in First Chronicles of, of uh, Solomon is this. And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. So what an awesome king with such a glorious kingdom. Solomon's kingdom was unprecedented. The nature of his global influence was unparalleled. And amidst all the success and abundance and at the completion of the temple, we actually will find Solomon at, at a bit of a crossroads here. And this leads us to the third act, the third movement, God's promise to Solomon. So flip over to Second Chronicles chapter 7 here. Um, and as we look at this, this is the second of the two encounters that God had with Solomon. So, you know, the first one is when he approaches him at the tent of meeting, tent of meeting. And then the second one is upon the completion of the temple. God comes and visits Solomon. So Second Chronicles 7, verse 11 Follow with me here. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and his own house, he successfully accomplished. When the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me as David walked, David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. So God affirms Solomon that he has heard his prayer that he made before the temple. And now that, that God's abiding presence is in the temple at the heart of the city of Jerusalem, God offers a renewal of the covenant to Solomon that he originally gave to David. And in our Old Testament, this is common. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he renews it with Isaac, and he renews it with Jacob. God's concerned that the next generation hears what he has promised. So he does this, the same covenant promise he gave to David, he follows up with Solomon. But as we look at this covenant, it comes in the form of a conditional promise to both Israel and also to Solomon. And the conditionality is made clear by the if-then formula that we found in the passage. So the conditional promise to the people of God is if, if my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, then I will hear and forgive and heal their land. So this, this shows us something of the heart of God, that he's always ready to stand and receive those who come to him with a humble and repentant heart. That's a promise. He will not turn away anyone that comes with a humble and repentant heart but it's conditional. Will the people of Israel continue to come with a humble and repentant heart? And then second, we see a conditional promise here for Solomon. If you walk before me as David, your father walked, doing all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne and you shall not lack a man to rule on Israel. So God will secure the kingdom if Solomon and his sons walk as David walked as men after his own heart. 
So this is where we come to the crossroads, and, and we need to pose a question here. How will the greatest king in the history of Israel respond as God renews his covenant with him? This is the long-anticipated Savior King of Israel. We've been waiting for this moment, waiting for this king to establish his kingdom, to dwell in the promised land. So it's at this point that I want to turn to the fourth act of Solomon's life here and consider the heart of Solomon. So it seems that in the second half of Solomon's reign, once he had completed building the temple and his own house, that things begin to unravel a bit. And in 2 Chronicles 8, 11, we get a, a clue or a, a hint of this. And a little passage, a little verse nestled in there, but it says, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel, for the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Uh-oh. Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. If we're familiar with the Old Testament law, law of Moses found in Exodus, it should be ringing in our ears here that the Lord prohibited marrying women from nations who worship other gods. And here with Solomon, we get a hint of mixed motives. On the one hand, Solomon is wise enough to recognize that it's not good for his Egyptian wife to... Uh, be in this, the house of David because David's house in Jerusalem and the temple, they are holy. It's where God abides. So, so Solomon's wise enough to say, yeah, she probably shouldn't be here. But on the other hand, he doesn't all seem, at all seem alarmed to address what God has prohibited in the first place. And so here in Solomon's life, it feels like there's a little bit of a public-private tension he doesn't want to profane what God has made holy, yet it seems that his own holiness is on the back burner. And, and publicly, it might be like, yeah, Solomon, that seems like a good idea to not offend a holy God. That seems good. Yeah, just build her a house and put her somewhere else, you know? But privately, it's like, Solomon, what are you doing? Don't you know that this goes against the law of God? So we have this kind of public-private tension. And just as a quick side note, how many of us are prone to this in our own life? We know that some things are unacceptable according to God and his word. And so we're careful in our public image and before the church and before other people in, in crafting what they know. Yet in private, we give way to desires and hide secret sins that we know are wrong. And we rationalize what's happening and we make peace with it. Perhaps like Solomon, we attempt to limit or minimize the problem. We think that we've got it under control. But in the end, we actually don't identify it as sin and humbly, repentantly address it. We don't, with a broken heart, just call it what it is. And here's the problem with Solomon and his private sin. This little thing doesn't stay a little thing. And in fact, we're, this is going to be the one time we're going, to, we're going to jump out of Chronicles here and go look at 1 Kings 11, 1 through 9. And in 1 Kings, it helps us provide a little bit more of a conclusive summary of Solomon's life. It gets at the heart of who Solomon is or where he's going. 1 Kings 11, and you can just listen, I'll read it here. 11 verse 1 says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall, shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, 
and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place in Chemosh for the abomination of Moab and for Molech and the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Here we have the greatest and most glorious king, and we see the path that his heart goes down in light of the promise and the covenant that God renewed, reconfirmed with him. And the order of events and the eventual fall of Solomon is actually is kind of ambiguous as we read the, the storyline. But what is certain is that it's catastrophic. Like many sins in idolatry, crossing a line for a first time is a big deal. But then rather quickly, the routine of crossing the line becomes normalized. Our conscience becomes seared. We become callous to the, the word of God, to his spirit. Did this begin with the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter? Well, it's, it's not clear. We don't know for sure. But what is clear is that this kind of offense grew into something much larger and was his eventual downfall. So as we consider just that passage and the downfall of Solomon, there's two signs of a larger problem here. The first sign is that he's marrying foreign women. And that's what the passage says is the main problem. He married foreign women. And so I, I don't think this is a problem necessarily in that someone is foreign. Because we, we could think of people like Boaz and Ruth, and Ruth was a foreigner, and there was marriage there. There's, no, there's not a problem there. But his problem with foreign women in this so much is that they are worshiping and serving other gods. And that one's heart will be turned and begin to drift towards something else that is not God himself. And so here there are at least uh, there are foreign women from at least six different nations listed who then Solomon let turn his heart away from the true God. And this isn't just Solomon turning away a blind eye. Maybe it was initially. But he actually builds them places of worship. He builds them places to sacrifice. <laughs> and that's, he's active in it, not just passive, he's active. So that, that's one sign of the problem here. Um, but second, I think for some of us, there's another sign here, and it's Solomon's misunderstanding and abuse of the marriage covenant. So the text doesn't indicate that this is the main problem here. But for us today, as we look at those numbers, it's very shocking. 700 wives, 300 concubines, which are like slave wives. That's like 1,000 women that are living in his home that we presume he's had relations with. So when it comes to abundance, Solomon's life is abundant in almost every respect, including his wives. And so how, how do we make sense of this? It's not the main point here, but I think it's like enough of a hurdle that we should like, what's going on here? Um, is it acceptable for Old Testament characters, especially kings, to have multiple wives? And no, I, I think the answer is no, I, I don't think so. And, and if you can look at this, one reasonable thought as to why this could be the case is, if you go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, and, and uh, Pastor Steve preached on this a while ago, but from the transition from Judges to Samuel, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, we want a king. We need a king. And God and Samuel are like, no, like, God's the king. <laughs> we got one already. But they're, no, they're like, we want a king like the other nations. And so in that, God says, okay, give them a king. And Samuel gives them warnings of what a king rule is going to look like. But think about where this begins who, are, who is Israel looking to as a model for a king? <laughs> are they looking to God, or are they looking to the nations? And I think in this circumstance, this is a common thing for kings to marry and form political alliance, alliances. And when you have power, you use it and you abuse it. And in this circumstance, I think we see that the Old Testament is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. So what I mean is that it's describing what happened. It's not prescribing this as 
important <laughs> and more like the true life. And so the Old Testament describes what's true. And what we see is that most of the Old Testament is a broken, fallen people constantly veering away from God. And what should be clear in Genesis 1 of the nature of marriage of a man leaving and holding fast to his wife, singular, and then what Jesus later confirms, I think this is a, a, a dramatic abuse of what God intended for the marriage covenant. But again, we look at the question, where, where are they taking their cues from? And I think they're taking their cues from the nations. And so, in light of this, I'm thankful in one sense that we have a Bible that is honest. It's not whitewashing details. But we can see, but it's also honest about the, the nature of sin and the problem. And here for Solomon, for sure, this is a deep problem. But again, these are, these are both signs, the signs that he's marrying foreign women and then he misses, misunderstands and abuses the marriage covenant. But then what, what's the larger problem? What are these things pointing to? The larger problem here is Solomon's heart. The Solomon's heart was not set to serve God and obey his law. He slowly over time turned away to serve other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord, and as, as was the heart of his father David. God had provided him with everything he needed to be a successful king, and everything in, the, in earthly standards. But he did not walk as David walked. He did not obey the commands and laws. And it's, it's not that David lived a perfect life himself, but David's heart was pure and repentant. David returned to God even in his sin and acknowledged it, and God had mercy on him in that. But Solomon's heart was compromised. It was unrepentant as he served other gods and served himself in the process. So we see the final description of Solomon's life. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So much greatness and glory, and yet he abandoned God and did what was evil in his sight. And it's this action that actually led to the division of the kingdom. And that's where we get, as you read the book of Kings, you get this conflicted back and forth of the king of Israel, the king of Judah. They're warring with each other. But God divides the kingdom into two. The ten northern tribes are one, what is known as like the, the kingdom of Israel. And then the southern tribe, Judah, kind of along with the Levites, is the southern tribe, the tribe, tribe of Judah. And, and so in this, this divided kingdom becomes a very complex and tense relationship. And David and Solomon, they're the only two kings to truly reign over united Israel. But it's by Solomon's unrepentance and pride that the nation was split, divided, never to be united again. So having considered the life of Solomon, I want to take just a couple minutes to reflect on two primary lessons that can be learned and applied here. So the first one, Solomon is a warning and case study for where true life and joy are found. So Solomon is the king who did, uh, did right in the eyes of the world. By earthly standards, you couldn't ask for a better king. But in the end, he wasn't the king that the people of God needed most. Solomon is what we would like to call hashtag blessed. And though blessed, he didn't find true life and joy in the presence of God like his father David. His heart became callous and he cut himself off from the source of life. And that had grave consequences for the nation of Israel. And we see the contrast in that Solomon has unique contributions to the Bible. At least books that are attributed to being to him. We see Proverbs is mostly attributed to Solomon. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And we see just the divine wisdom that God has given him. That, that's a gift from God. That's clear. There's a reason that that's there. But we see the heart of David in the Psalms, right? As we read the Psalms and we see his heart before God, we don't have many Psalms from Solomon that reflect that same idea. So there's something about the heart here and that though he had all the earthly blessings, it was not enough. 
So similarly, we have a tendency towards pride when we, have consider our, when we consider ourselves blessed. And when we see these blessings and we take pride in them, this moves us more towards self-reliance rather than a continued dependence on God and a continued dependence to see him as the source of our blessing. In the end, this wasn't Solomon's kingdom. This was God's kingdom. God gave all the gifts. God did the work. But Solomon got confused about that. He depended on himself. So I think it's helpful for us to take a moment and take inventory of our own life. What are the little sins or idols in your life today that could turn into a catastrophic downfall or separation from God in the future? What, what are those things that are lingering, that are hiding in the private aspect of your life? Where are you prone to think that the good life is found? Is it in your work success and achievement? Is it in your possessions? A padded bank account or retirement account? Are you looking for life in marriage and friendships, in your health or diet, in raising successful children? Are you looking for good life and lack of conflict, being liked by other people, by good image? And as we list these things, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. In fact, to some degree, they're all good. But the problem is when we stop giving God praise and thanks for being the giver of those gifts, and we begin to rely on ourselves. We try to control outcomes, believing that happiness can be derived on our own. We think uh, that uh, uh, finding joy is... Uh, dependent on being in or receiving those things rather than understanding that finding joy is found in relationship with Christ first. <laughs> and then through relationship with Christ, we can enjoy him through the different blessings and, and blessings or accolades we have in life. So maybe repentance is in order this morning. Maybe there's a little private sin or idol in your life that needs to be confessed before both God and man. So I want to encourage you to, to bring whatever it is that might be holding you back, to bring that out into the light, to bring that to God, to know that he will hear you and forgive you. And also to know that uh, as, as fellow Christians, as brothers and sisters in our room, it's also our responsibility to forgive one another. It's so in that, it's our responsibility to bring these things before the church, before others, so that we can practice forgiveness and care and walk alongside each other in the difficulties of life. And we don't want to be like Solomon and merely hide it to the public eye, only to our eventual downfall. And we want to be here for one another as, as the church. And yes, imperfectly at times. Yes, we're going to hurt each other. Yes, we're not going to display forgiveness. But we know that as a church, because we are Christ, we are called to that. So we must step into that all the more. The second lesson here, Solomon is a type or shadow of the king to come and the future heavenly kingdom that he will bring. So Solomon is a type or shadow of the king to come and the future heavenly kingdom that he will bring. So in one sense, David and Solomon together would make the perfect king as you got heart and, and glory of kingdom, right? Heart and wisdom, wise execution. But in another sense, David could be representative of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Suffering, no home. And then Solomon is representative of, of the future heavenly reign of Christ. One day we will have a king who will reign in glory and prosperity and affluence. So we, we could think about the two of them pointing to the ultimate king. But ultimately, we, we need a king with the very heart of God who will bring about a final kingdom a king who will bring heaven here onto earth. And all of Scripture anticipates this true and great king of whom David and Solomon, though they fall short, they're pointers to. They give us a taste of something. And when God made his covenant with David, he said this to him, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be me a son. 
and will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. What Solomon fulfilled in part, Jesus fulfilled in the whole. Jesus has established a kingdom that will never fail. He is building the house that will last forever. He will reign from his throne for all eternity. And he, Jesus the Son, will never have the steadfast love of God removed from him. His church is the very temple of which he is pleased to indwell through the Spirit. So let us see through the dim mirror of Solomon and see how his life anticipates a greater and more glorious king. Wealth and glory and greatness are nothing if they are not accompanied by a heart that longs to be right before God. And so Jesus is the king who has the very heart of God. It is him alone who can transform your heart. Again, provided we forsake all earthly treasure, provided we give him our heart and our life and follow him, understanding that he is the treasure, that we gain everything with him, and that life in his presence will much surpass the glorious kingdom of Solomon. And so as we're going to sing this next song, let us dwell on the hope and joy that are found in Christ alone, and that our worth is not in what we obtain in this life. Jesus is the king who did right in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, thankful that you sent a son, the true king, Lord, who has uh, begun a kingdom work that cannot be stopped. Lord, we thank you that you have provided salvation through a sacrifice in him. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you, to depend on you. Um, Lord, that you would give us a heart after your own heart. And Lord, we would be transformed into your image. But Lord, more than that, would you stir our hearts for the glory that will be in your presence, for the glory of your future kingdom that will be even greater than the kingdom of Solomon. Help us to long for that, Lord, and would you preserve us in the process. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.